It was uh, an honor and a privilege uh, to have George preach for us uh, in Colombia this past summer when uh, I was given a, a sabbatical. And it's equally an honor for me to uh, reciprocate and be asked to come and preach here. I'm old enough to be George's father, uh, but I regard him as a dear friend. And in mutual uh, seasons of need, uh, we ministered to uh, one another. And if you haven't experienced that, it's hard to explain just how valuable uh, that Jesus-like ministry um, is. Now, technically, this is uh, Reformation Sunday, at least in the circles that I move in, and it's customary to have a sermon uh, typically on Romans 1 and verses 16 and 17, uh, a Luther text. We did begin our worship service uh, singing Luther's great uh, hymn, but there were other aspects of the Reformation uh, that I want to bring out, and one in particular, um, the doctrine of providence, God's overruling of all of our lives, ordering things in such a manner that uh, he brings to pass uh, what he has designed for us. And that was a theme uh, of uh, the reformers uh, in the 16th century. And the text uh, that I want us to look at this morning is in Colossians chapter one and beginning at verse 24. And before I read it, let's pray together. Father, we thank you Thank you for your word. Holy men of old wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Colossians 1 and verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy and inerrant word. As you can see, Paul is writing here to the Colossians. It's a church that he has never seen, he's never been there, he administered a decade earlier in Ephesus, and Ephesus and Colossae are in the same general region, the so-called Lysus Valley. And we know that uh, epistles uh, that were written to Colossae and Ephesus were interchanged. Uh, they bore um, many similar marks. They uh, had similar backgrounds. The composition of the churches uh, were very similar. Um, Paul is in prison. 
Uh, it's roughly AD 61. Uh, it's the imprisonment that we read of um, at the end of the Acts of the Apostles in Acts chapter 28, the house arrest in Rome. And Epaphras has come from Colossae. Uh, he made his way by sea. He would have come via the Aegean and the Mediterranean, landed on the west coast of Italy, made his way to Rome, and then looked uh, for the apostle Paul, who, as I said, was under house arrest. He brings with him news about the Colossian church. It's about 10 years old. Paul's ministry in Ephesus would have been 10 years before, and Epaphras probably was there in Ephesus, went back to Colossae, planted this church. There are some problems in the church, and we read about them in chapter 2. There were those suggesting, for example, that it wasn't enough to have Jesus. You needed something more. You, you needed a special word, a special knowledge, a special insight, which only a, a few were privy to. It's a form of Gnosticism that's infected this Hellenistic Greek church in Colossae. There were others coming from a different section, su suggesting that it wasn't enough to believe in Jesus. Jewish believers needed to believe and, and adopt and, and put into practice certain Old Testament ceremonial laws. We know, for example, in Galatians, there was an insistence there on uh, Gentiles being circumcised and coming into compliance with certain Jewish laws. Common to both was the idea that Jesus wasn't enough, that you needed something more. It was one of the great themes of the Reformation, Christ alone. It's not a Jesus plus your prayers. It's not Jesus plus your good works. It's not Jesus plus your ceremonial obedience. It was Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, as taught in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Paul, as he's writing to these Colossians in the light of what Epaphras has taught him, mentions, first of all, his sufferings. He says in verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul is in prison. He's under house arrest. He's probably chained to two soldiers. He had appealed to his Roman citizenship and his entitlement to be heard before the emperor. The New Testament talks about three imprisonments. There's a fourth one, the final one, but that's not in the New Testament. The first one is in Philippi, in Macedonia. On his second missionary journey, some 10 years before this epistle, a demon-possessed woman, a young girl, kept following Paul and Silas, and every now and then she would interfere in the course of their 
preaching and teaching, and, and she would yell certain things. Sometimes what she said was orthodox, and sometimes it wasn't, but the motivation was decidedly d- demonic. And it got on Paul's nerves, and, and, and he stops and casts the demon out. She was a victim of what we would today call human trafficking. She was a slave girl owned by certain people used in order to bring profit to them. And now that the demon has been cast out, they are without the benefit of the financial reward that she brought them. And so a scuffle takes place and Paul is placed in prison along with Silas. You remember it's the occasion when their chains fell off and the doors opened and the jailer cries out, what must I do to be saved? And you remember Paul's answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and all your household. And Paul baptized him and his household. The second imprisonment is six years later in AD 57, and this time it's in Jerusalem. Paul, as a Jewish believer, had difficult relationships with his fellow Jews. They suspected him as a traitor, and he goes to Jerusalem with the intent of trying to mend some of these relationships. He takes part in a celebration of the Jewish rite of purification. I think he could do this in all conscience. There were certain Jewish ceremonies that he could no longer participate in because they would bring into question the finished and complete work of Christ, but this was not one of those. It didn't work. And a scuffle um, breaks out. That's a polite word for a riot. Uh, And uh, Paul uh, is taken by Roman soldiers uh, to spare him uh, further further damage, and he's taken this time to the Antonia Fortress, uh, the jail in the Roman fortress on the northwest side uh, of uh, the temple area. It was a tall building allowing the Gentile soldiers to look down into the innermost parts of the temple, particularly uh, necessary when festival days occurred and hundreds of thousands of people might have been on the temple mount. You might remember there was an assassination plot on the Apostle Paul. Paul's nephew, that we otherwise don't know anything about, but his nephew uh, relates this, and so he is taken uh, down uh, west and down towards the coast at Caesarea where he will spend the next two years in prison. You'll remember from your knowledge of the Acts of the Apostles uh, that Felix, the, the governor, Uh, was almost persuaded by the Apostle Paul, and then when he dies, uh, Festus takes over, and then Paul appealed to his rights as a Roman citizen, and he is taken on that perilous journey by sea, uh, which involved a shipwreck, uh, and eventually makes his way uh, to the city of Rome, which is where he is right now as he writes this epistle. Now, there will be a fourth um, imprisonment. He'll be let out of this imprisonment, in Rome and he'll make his way westward towards Spain and plant uh, further churches, but then within a few years he's rearrested and at the behest of Emperor uh, Nero uh, will be beheaded uh, as a Roman 
citizen. He knew all about suffering. Do you, know, do you remember in Galatians, he says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I imagine him sometimes on the Mediterranean, by the Sea of Galilee, it's hot, it's summer, he needs to bathe. He takes off his outer garment and, and you look at his back and, and you gasp in horror because five times he received the 39 lashes with ropes and bits of metal and bone tied into them that cut into the flesh of his back and sometimes exposing inner organs. He knew all about suffering. He knew all about mental suffering and physical suffering and spiritual suffering and psychological suffering and Maybe that's you this morning. There must be several dozen people in here this morning, and maybe more. And you're facing all kinds of suffering, all kinds of trial, all kinds of difficulty. In your home, in your marriage, in your relationships with siblings or children, in your work, in your head, psychological suffering that you don't even know where it's coming from. And Paul is saying, I know all about suffering. It's one of the first lessons that he learned on his first missionary journey to Cyprus and beyond. And when he came back to Antioch, the mother church that sent him, he told them, as he reported on that journey, it is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. Every Christian has a share of suffering to some degree, to some extent, some more than others. And there'll be certain seasons in your life where you'll pass through suffering. And Paul has something to say to you this morning, if that's the case. Because in the second place, he tells us about the joy that he found despite the sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I rejoice in them. He says that elsewhere in Romans chapter five. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Hope that does not make us ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is given to us. Suffering produces endurance, stickability, perseverance, but it also produces character. And in the Greek, it means something like tried and tested. You know people, they've been tested and tried, and they've come out on the other side, and they have a strength, they have backbone, they have steel, they've been through much. You know of soldiers who've come back from active duty, and they've, they've experienced terrible things. And sometimes it undoes them, but sometimes it produces Character. It produces strength. It produces something of a personality. 
Suffering can do many things. Think of the three on the cross. In one, the suffering was atoning. In another, it was converting. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today, you will be with me in paradise. But in another, it was hardening. It hardened him. It made him cynical and angry and bitter. It can do that in you, but you must not let it. You must live under the umbrella of Romans 8.28. We know that in all things, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Outside of that umbrella, what have you got? You've got uncertainty. You've got bitterness. You've got futility. You've got emptiness. You've got a world that doesn't make any sense. But underneath the umbrella and protection of Romans 8.28, what have you got? You've got certainty. You've got hope. You've got Jesus. You've got God's word. You've got God's promises. You've got God's providence. He will never leave you nor forsake you. There's a purpose in this suffering. You may not know what that purpose is. Sometimes we don't know what it is. Job was never told. After all the questions he put before Almighty God, he didn't get a single answer. Sometimes, like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, the only answer that you'll get is, my grace will be sufficient for you. It's not important that you understand why you suffer. It's only important that God knows and that you trust him. Jesus gave us a principle. Unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Our outward man must die. We must take up a cross and follow the Lord Jesus. But if you bear that cross, it'll bear you. It'll bring forth much fruit. That's what Paul is telling these Colossians. The going is hard. The way is rough. And you must place your hand in Jesus' hand and take one step after another and don't let go of him. He will never leave you or forsake you. You will endure to the end. He will bring you all the way home. You must learn to trust him. And then in the third place, Paul tells us the reason for his suffering. And he gives us two responses. And the first one is, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. That's a very difficult statement. I fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. How can we possibly say that there's something lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Sometimes when you come across a text in the Bible 
that is difficult to understand. You must always interpret it in the light of other texts that are easy to understand. So that whatever Paul is saying here cannot contradict what he says clearly elsewhere. And clearly elsewhere, he tells us that the sufferings of Christ on the cross were enough. He paid it all. All to him I owe. In his death and resurrection, he has paid the price in full for our sins. Written on your soul are the words, paid in full. We have nothing to pay. We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We rest on what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and his resurrection was the Father's approval that his substitutionary sacrifice on my behalf was enough to satisfy the demands of divine justice. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be reckoned the righteousness of God in him. All you need is Jesus, not Jesus plus. The damnable plus, as Luther said. So what is Paul saying here when he says, I make up in my body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, that is the church. And this is where the Reformation made such an important statement about union with Christ. The church is Christ's body and he is the head. And when the body hurts, the head hurts too. Because we are an organic union, this is one of the metaphors of the Apostle Paul for the church of Christ, that we are the body and he is the head. If you hurt a part of the body, you hurt him. It's what uh, Saul of Tarsus learned on the Damascus road when he was persecuting Stephen. He had orders, signed orders, to imprison men and women, and he almost brought the New Testament church into oblivion. He almost wiped it out. Now, Saul didn't throw stones at Stephen, others did, but those who did brought their garments and laid them at the foot of, of Saul, showing that he was complicit. He had given the orders. They were behaving on his request. And you remember what he heard. He saw the risen Christ. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He was persecuting Stephen. But Jesus is saying to him, if you persecute one of mine, you persecute me also. If, if one of mine suffers, I suffer along with them. And in that sense, Paul, in his sufferings, was making up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, in the communion and union that Christ has with his body, the church. Our 
That's a great comfort, isn't it? That we do not suffer alone. We do not have an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He knows your hurt, he knows your pain, he knows your sufferings. He's been there before. You may find yourself in the darkest cave where you can see no light, and you can get down on your knees and feel the sand before you, and you can feel a footprint. You cannot see it, but you can feel it. It is the footprint of the Lord Jesus who has gone before you and has promised to you that He will never leave you nor forsake you. He may also mean something else. It says in the next verse, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make up the Word of God, to make the Word of God fully known. This word fully, it's a, it's a motif in Colossians. He uses the word a lot. There were those in Colossae who were suggesting that when you have Jesus, you don't have fullness. You, you don't have completeness. And he's saying... In the advancement, and he's thinking of himself as an apostle, and he's thinking of himself as a missionary, and in the advancement of the gospel from one region to another, and unto the ends of the earth, as Paul would have understood it, there's a cost. There was a cost in taking the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost ends of the world, just as there's a cost in taking the gospel outside these walls and across the street and into the city of, well, I've got to say Birmingham, Birmingham. I was going to say Birmingham, which is the English way of saying it, into Alabama and across the world. And there's a cost. And that cost may be your ostracism. It, it may not be physical. Though it might be. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but things are not looking great in North America for the church right now. And it's time to stand and be committed, to hold fast to the Word of God, to stay close to Jesus and fulfill His commission, to go and make disciples of all nations teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age, and there'll be a cost to make up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ in a culture that is increasingly in opposition to fundamental Christian beliefs. And as you hold them, and you hold them winsomely, there'll be a cost if you try to make your opinion known on social media, well, in my opinion, you're crazy, but <laughs> it's a toxic place. And people are unhinged, and they may come after you. And it's a time for us as Christians, and especially conservative Christians, 
to stand firm in the gospel and to recognize that this is the cost of following Jesus. But then he says something else. To make known among the Gentiles the mystery of God. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. And in Paul's ministry, he had taken the gospel into the then world of the Roman Empire, making his way, we think, eventually, all the way over to Spain, planting churches as he went, largely Gentile churches. Folk who under the Old Testament knew almost nothing except that which was revealed in creation. There were a few here and there who became proselytes and they, and they received the wisdom of the Old Testament Scriptures, but largely the Gentiles were in darkness, but no more. With the coming of the Lord Jesus, with His death and resurrection, with Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the gospel is now spreading into all the world, and the Gentiles are beginning to see the mystery. What is a mystery? Something that was hidden that is now revealed. I'm watching rings of power. Actually, I've watched it. I'm told there are four more series. Let's hope I'm alive to see them. <laughs> it was slow going. And, and spoiler alert, you may put your fingers in your ears if you're not wanting a spoiler alert here, but there's a strange man in it, somewhat weird, with strange sort of powers that he doesn't seem to be in control of. And at his first appearance, I really didn't understand, who is this man? And then it suddenly dawned on me as more things about him became evident. This is Gandalf, a much earlier Gandalf, to be sure, but a mystery is unfolding what is the mystery of the gospel that Paul wants Gentiles in Colossae to know? Christ in you, the hope of glory. They're astonishing words. That when you have Jesus, when you believe in Him, when you trust in Him, when you give your life to Him, He's in you. You dwell in Him and He dwells in you. You have union and communion with the risen, ascended Christ who is sitting at the right hand of God in glory. And what does that mean? What does it mean to have Jesus? The hope of glory, Paul says. When you have Jesus, you have everything. You have the hope of heaven. You have the hope of the new heavens and new earth. You're going to live forever. Oh, let that sink in for a minute. You're going to live forever, and you're going to live forever in His presence. You have the certainty, the assurance, what the New Testament calls hope of glory. To be in the presence of Christ forever and ever, to worship Him. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation. You are more than conquerors through Him who loved you. 
Do you understand that? Do you believe that? If you're not a Christian, why aren't you calling out to him? There is nothing more that can be offered. This is the greatest prize that you can ever receive, the hope of glory. This world will be destroyed one way or another. Here we have no continuing city. We seek one which is to come, whose builder and maker is God. Why aren't you crying out to him? Call upon him while he is near. Knock and the door will be answered to you. Seek and you shall find. Every time. Even today. Paul is writing from his prison cell in Rome. And he's saying to these Colossians who he's never met and never seen, I know, I know one thing about you. That if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you have the hope of glory. The absolute certainty and conviction and assurance of glory. Aren't we the most blessed people on earth? Sinclair Ferguson, who I had the pleasure of ministering alongside in Colombia for two years, and has been my friend for 40 years, and I can't tell you how many sermons of his I've listened to, but he often would end his sermons by saying, isn't it a wonderful thing to be a Christian? Isn't it a wonderful thing to be a Christian? Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth. Christ in you, Christ in me, the hope and certainty and assurance of glory. No greater word could be spoken about us. And we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.